All right, we are in Acts chapter 24 this morning, and before we get into that, let's do our memory work. I know you look forward to that every week. (laughs) I can tell. Acts chapter 22. What's Acts 22? We're in a section. I had had you some uh, notes there as you were coming in. Perhaps you saw those on the board. I left those up there for you, Uh, but I took it off. Acts 22, Paul's defense to the Jews in Jerusalem, a crowd of Jews in Jerusalem. Acts 23, Paul's defense to Sanhedrin, Acts 24, defense to Felix, 25 is his defense to Festus, very good. And then he appeals to Caesar in the last part of that chapter. We'll look at that next week. Chapter 26, defense to Herod Agrippa. Chapter 27, the voyage to Rome. And the shipwreck, Acts 28, is it the island of Malta? Remember they shipwreck at the island of Malta, island of Malta and then Rome and then Paul teaching at Rome. All right, that's Acts 28. Very good. As we left off last week, we were in chapter 23, Paul had appeared before the Sanhedrin. That didn't go so well. It's kind of an uproar took place, and the Roman authorities come to his rescue. They say, oh, that's enough of that. And, and notice that they're observing what took place at the Sanhedrin. So the Roman authorities are superior. They, they come in and take over when things don't go right. That's what they did, and they bring Paul back into custody Hearing of a plot to kill him, we, you remember we talked about last week that they usher him out of Jerusalem in the middle of the night with a small army of 470 soldiers, and there's one Paul and 470 soldiers. What does that tell you? Paul is a very polarizing figure, to say the least, and they usher him to the city of Caesarea here. You'll see on the map, if you might visualize what took place that night as they're getting him to Caesarea. Caesarea is kind of a capital city. Remember, this is where the rulers would stay much of the time. Many of them would reside there in the city of Caesarea. So now Paul is in the hands of the Roman authorities. He's, uh, we're going to see today what is a Roman uh, court scene. He's out of the control of the Sanhedrin. Okay, let's begin at our text here at Acts chapter 24. What just took place, as we described, going to Caesarea, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with certain elders and with an orator named Tertullus, and they informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called, when Paul was called, Tertullus began to accuse him. I want you to get perhaps the feeling of, of an orator, Tertullus, as we're in a court scene here. Many people are in 
observance here in the audience. And he began seeing that by thee, Felix, that we enjoy much peace. And by thy providence, evils are corrected for this nation. We accept it in all ways and all places, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Can you hear the oratory skills of, of Tertullus as he spreads it on very thick? Verse 4, but that I might not be further tedious to you, I request you to hear a few words of thy, my version says, of thy clemency, a few words. We have found this man, and it begins the accusation part here in verse 5. We have found this man a pestilent fellow, or a, some of your versions may simply say a plague. He's a plague. How would you like to be referred to as a plague? We found this man a pestilent fellow, a mer- mover of insurrections, or a riotous person among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And moreover, verse 6 He essayed or attempted to go and profane the temple on whom also we laid hold, from whom thou wilt be able by examining him. This is exactly what we're talking about. You'll be able to see the accusations that that we refer to as you examine him further. Very short and sweet for an orator, but I'm sure Luke condensed it for us. Verse 9, the Jews also joined in this charge, affirming that these things were so. So as we look at his accusations on the screen, we're looking at basically verse 1 through 9 here. Tertullus begins the accusation. He spreads it on thick. He gains the favor of Felix's ears by appealing to his great leadership abilities and what he's done for the country. But he begins... Uh, with an accusation, this Paul is a pestilent fellow. He's a plague. And I'll highlight the three particular accusations here in number three, four, and five, that he's an insurrectionist, that he causes riots where he goes. That's kind of a, that that really uh, goes toward the idea of the Roman authorities. Caesar himself, perhaps, if there's things that are out of control, there's a riot. They don't want riots. They don't want riots in their cities. They want peace, and they want taxes. Number four, he's accused of being a ringleader of the Nazarenes. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, we talk about in the New Testament, is not a derogatory term, but it seems to be used by him in that way in, in this case. He's a ringleader of these Nazarene people, this sect, this heresy. And that uh, targets the idea of the law of Moses. He's a ringleader of the Nazarenes. He's a a sect. He's part of a heresy. He's a leader of the heresy. And that goes against the law of Moses as far as we are concerned. Number five, he's attempted to profane the temple temple. Recall previously, Paul had been accused of profaning the temple. Here, it seems that they're backing off of that just a bit by saying that he attempted or essayed to go and profane the temple itself. So here is an accusation that he defiled the temple itself, very very temple. So we've got three things, Uh, attack on Caesar, 
the attack on the law of Moses, and then the temple itself. And you just examine them, you'll see these things that we say that they're true as you examine them further. Now, Paul is given his opportunity. Verse 10, the governor turned to him and beckoned to him, nodded to him, and Paul began to speak. Verse 10, he continues, for as much as I know, now this is Paul speaking, that thou... Felix have been many years a judge unto this nation, seeing that you can take knowledge that it is not more than twelve days that I since I went up to Jerusalem. He's been in Caesarea for about five days, and all of this really leads us to the conclusion that it hasn't been very long. These it hasn't it's very fresh on our minds. It should be. Hadn't been more than 12 days since all of this occurred. Now he continues in uh, verse 11, or the latter part of verse 11, since I went up to Jerusalem, and neither in the temple did I find they find me disputing with any man, or stirring up a crowd, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city. Neither can they prove to thee the things whereof they now accuse me. I want you to pause there and go back to chapter 23 in your mind and remember that we were in the Sanhedrin Council last week, and what was it that was, I didn't highlight this last week, but what was it that was so obviously missing in that time that they should have had being Jews that followed the law of Moses? They should have had something there. Two or three witnesses. We didn't see that, did we? And it's interesting, we don't see it here either. That was the way the Jews were supposed to handle situations like that. Two or three witnesses. They didn't have it then, they don't have it now. And I think that's what he probably refers to here in verse 13. Neither can they prove to thee the things that they accuse me of... If they'd had two or three witnesses, that would go quite a good ways towards verifying these things, these accusations to be true. Verse 14, this I confess, but this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call a sect, so serve I the God of our fathers. Now let's pause here and look at so far what Paul's defense is as he defends himself. He doesn't need a Tertullus. All he needs is the truth. That's quite interesting. When you have the truth, let me just pause there and think about it. When you've got the truth and you know what the truth is and you're not trying to malign people, you're not trying to make yourself look good, it's very easy to defend yourself in the way that Paul does here. Paul's defense is verse 10 through 21. The first he highlights There's been only 12 days since this event, since they attacked me in the temple. I have been peaceful. I was peaceful in the temple. I was peaceful in the synagogues. I was peaceful in the city of Jerusalem. And furthermore, there is no proof of these accusations that they present. And I would say that probably means that there's no witnesses here. They haven't presented any witnesses which is one of the first things you would want to present here in a case like this. Now, I think from Paul's perspective, these first three points here 
go toward the civil part of their accusations. They're, they're up in arms about what Paul has done, and he is appealing to the civil part of, of his defense. Now we go into his religious part of it where he actually says what he was doing and what I am all about. Verse 14, but this I do confess to you that after the way which they call a sect or a heresy, so survive the God of our fathers, believing all things which are written according to the law and which are written in the prophets. Notice he says, I believe those things that are written in the law. He doesn't say that I observe those things as religious, religiously. I believe those things. We'll see a bit more about that in verse 15. Talking about the old law and the prophets, verse 15, he says, having hope toward God, which these also themselves look for. These people that have come to accuse me this day, they look for these promises to be fulfilled, for that there shall be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust. We're reminded there in verse 15 of what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. He said, all in the graves or in the tombs will arise. They'll arise to a resurrection. Those that have done good to a resurrection of life. Those that have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. In that case, judgment would be damnation. Verse, so he brings up what topic once again, as we've seen over and over and over throughout Acts, the topic of the resurrection, a very core part of the gospel. And don't you find it interesting that Paul is in a, what we would describe or think of as a civil court scene, and he's still finding opportunity to talk about the resurrection. Could you imagine yourself going to the Murfreesboro Courthouse and you're on trial and you begin to talk about the resurrection of the dead? You would, you would start to think, well, these people wouldn't know, wouldn't care. But that's where he goes. Verse 16, herein I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense toward God and men always. And that reminds us again of what we saw in chapter 23, verse 1, where he said, I've lived before God in all good conscience unto this day. He brings that up again, once again. All right, now let's look at this part of the defense that he gives. Number four, he says, after the way, yes, I am after the way. I am part of that. It's not a sect. It's not a heresy. That's just the way the Christians have described themselves and and have been referred to. Number five, I believe in the law. I don't observe the law. I believe in the law in the sense that I believe in the fulfillment of those promises and the hope of the resurrection. Number six, I brought alms to my people. That's what I was doing in Jerusalem. Remember, we talked about that. We alluded to Romans 15 where Paul said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm taking a bounty there to the needy saints. And that was part of his reason for going, to escort those men to Jerusalem with that money. And he brought the alms to his people. 
and also the offerings in the temple. That's what he was doing. That's what he was doing when those people uh, attacked him. Now, I want you to let's uh, step back for just a moment and consider what verse 15 refers to here the Old Testament passages that would refer to the resurrection. When we read something like this, we might step back and consider well, did the Old Testament talk about the resurrection? What promises did it have for the resurrection? Or should we look at it like the Sadducees did last week and we not believe in a resurrection and not believe that it exists? You might think about such passages as Genesis 22 where Abraham, and think about, I put this one up here just simply to remind us of the concept that people in the Old Testament had. They had a concept of the resurrection. Abraham did. In Hebrews 11 verse 19 It was said of Abraham that he believed that God was able to raise him, his son Isaac, up from the dead. He believed that he could do that. That was a concept that Old Testament fathers believed in. So we'll use also Exodus 3 that we talked about last week where the simple phrase, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob tells us that they still exist. In other words, they died upon the earth. Their body and soul have separated, but they still exist. At that time, God says, I am the God of these men. Psalm 49 verse 15 says, God will redeem my life from the grave. Again, another idea that we see that in the Old Testament, they understood there's life after death. Isaiah 53 might not be one that you would think of, but I put that here because at the very end of that that passage, There is an allusion to the exaltation of Jesus. How could that occur lest there be a resurrection? And then what we might call the exaltation or ascension of Jesus. Exodus or Ezekiel 37, the vision of dry bones. That's an interesting one. But if you consider a valley of dry bones and God is able to raise all these up, bring life back to them. For a, for a prophecy to be true, it has to first start with something that is real. Let's say you, you think about the temple, the symbolism of the temple. It can be the body. It can be the church. But for that to make sense to us, the temple itself has to be real. See, our our launching place has to be something we understand and we know and we understand it to be true. So for this to make sense in Exodus, uh, Ezekiel, rather, 37, for the vision of dry bones to make sense to us, we have to understand that there can be a resurrection of the body, that that can actually take place. There, of course, by the way, in that chapter is mainly referring to the primary references to the church itself, the new covenant. Daniel 2 verse, or Daniel 12 verse 2 refers to one again, those who sleep. It's referred to there that they shall, those that are in the dust of the earth that have been buried shall awake. So the, if we read a passage like our text today and we come along these verses and we say, well, what was the concept that they had? What references did they have about the resurrection itself? Because Paul says here, I believe what these accusers believe. I believe in the law. 
And in the law, the law pointed to resurrection. And he's saying, that is the reason I'm here today, because of the resurrection, because of teaching it and preaching it and upholding it every chance I have the opportunity to do so. Okay, any thoughts up to verse 16? Let's stop there. I've got one here. I've got one here. I apologize first. I'm sorry. I have to keep my mask on. Um, uh, I just wanted to say, um, he, um, uh, what was I going to say? Okay. He, um, I'm sorry. I lost it. It's okay. All right, Carrie. Uh, yeah, I was just going to make a comment that when you look at 14, he's a member or he's walking according to the way because he's believed everything that's in accordance with the law and the prophets. So if you read the law and you read the prophets, you're going to come to the conclusion that Christ is who he said he was or is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the same concept in Galatians 3. 24 that talks about the law being a tutor it led the jews but it's not just the jews it's anyone who reads the 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 law and the prophets is going to come to that same conclusion if they read it openly and study it Mm -hmm. very good it points points us to christ and yes yeah again regarding the resurrection the 73rd psalm the writer said Uh, His feet came close to stumbling because he had seen the wicked prospering and he trying to live a righteous life was suffering. But then he said, I perceived their end. But regarding himself, he says, your counsel will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Mm -hmm. Very good. Very good. There, There are more references in the Old Testament than we really realize sometimes, aren't there? Yes. Uh, I was going to say, they would have known about Jesus and the resurrection and stuff like that because they'd have had, uh, like, Psalms 22, st- stuff like that to refer, refer back to. And they would have known about um, a Messiah that was coming that would have been bruised for them and crucified for them and then raised on the third day. So Paul, knowing that that law and them knowing that law was very, very important and so they knew this was a true statement. They just didn't want to believe it. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, in verse 17, we continue Paul's defense. Uh, again, that section we just looked at was his, the religious part of the, uh, the defense that he gave. In verse 17, after some years, I came to bring alms to my nation. Amidst which they found me, purified in the temple with no crowd, nor yet with tumult, but there were certain Jews from Asia. And you know what? Verse 19, he says, where are they? Verse 19, he says, where are my accusers? They're the witnesses that we need. We need two or three witnesses, but where are they? As Paul is saying, really, isn't it quite obvious that they're missing today? My very accusers are not here. Yes, you've brought a high-priced lawyer with you, but where are the accusers? 
They ought to have been here, verse 19, before thee to make accusation if they had ought against me. Or else let these men themselves, let them say what I did in, in their audience, when I was in their audience at the Sanhedrin. Except it be for this one thing that I stood up and I cried among them touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question before you this day. That was the thing that really bothered them, wasn't it? As we saw last week, 23, that's the thing that caused the uproar. The Sanhedrin was so divided by that. All right, and this, as we look at the screen one more time here on Paul's defense, verse number 7, I was found purified in the temple. When they found me, I wasn't there profaning their temple at all. He had gone through the necessary purification. There was no tumult. The accusers are, it's quite obvious here, it's, it's quite a, a glaring oversight. But they're not here today. And as if to proclaim, why don't you disclose or have them disclose what it was I did wrong? And Paul actually provides the answer himself for that question by saying, I'll tell you what it was. It was touching the resurrection of the dead. That's the reason. All right. And then apparently, seemingly in verse 22, Felix just shuts it down. Felix just shuts it down and seems to turn on a dime and say, okay, he defers the case until who comes? Lysias. Lysias is our chief captain that we've been referring to, and we would see him, uh, his name mentioned in Acts 23, verse 26, when he wrote the letter to the governor Felix. He identified himself as Claudius Lysias, and now Felix turns and says, okay, we need to defer this case, put it off until Claudius Lysias, the authority in that part, comes and will uh, come down. Now, we don't see that coming about. We don't see that happening. But I think Felix here, perhaps having, as is, is described here, a better knowledge of the way, perhaps shuts this down because he sees that it is not very legitimate. So he defers the case until Lysias comes. Verse 23, he gave order to the centurion that Paul would be kept in charge and would have indulgence or have liberties and would have people be able to come to him and visit him. And I would imagine during this period of time that we're going to see here for the next couple of years that Paul probably had many visitors that came and he was able to teach and encourage. And you think about the strategic location of a city like Caesarea. We don't see a lot of evidence here about what Paul did during this period of time. But being the strategic place that it was, a seaport, a capital town, uh, a town where there's a lot of influx of people, I would venture to say that Paul did, was able to do a lot of good there, having visitors come and having certain amount of liberties, controlled liberties there by the Roman authorities. To be able to continue his ministry... 
And I step back and think about that. What would I do if I was arrested for the gospel? What would you do if you were arrested and put into prison for preaching the gospel? Let's pause just a minute at our reading and think about that. What would, what would I do? Would I sit in my cell and mope and whine and complain and about these authorities and bemoan my situation? And I would begin to think, well, my hands are tied. I can't do anything. But that's not the Paul that we see, is it? Paul looks for and finds every opportunity. We've, we've got such a history of that. In the New Testament, that Paul found opportunities. He took advantage of those opportunities. And I have to be ashamed to consider, would I be that ambitious in jail, in prison, to do something like Paul did, to continue to preach, and even find maybe more opportunities than you would have ever had before. Different opportunities. Also think about it from this perspective. What about his friends? Would you have been a friend of Paul? Would you be willing to go to visit him? What if you had a brother in Christ that had to go to jail tomorrow and it's not really too far out of our uh, imagination these days to consider that someone would have to go to prison for preaching the gospel, for preaching against abortion and homosexuality. And what if that person is in prison? Would you be willing to go visit him? Now we see what occurs in those next two years in the next paragraph. Those next two years that Paul spends in Caesarea in prison, what he does with his time, part of what he does with his time and his abilities. Verse 24, after certain days, Felix came with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Jesus Christ. Drusilla is the daughter of the Herod that we saw in Acts chapter 12, the daughter of Herod. And she herself does not have a very good reputation as far as the historians are concerned. But she does have knowledge of the way, a knowledge of these Jews. They send for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that they would even summons him to a, a meeting Perhaps they see people visiting Paul, and they are curious to see what it is they teach and observe. So they want to know. And as they are discussing with Paul, Paul reasoned with them, verse 25, of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. The historians, again, would tell us that Felix and Drusilla are living in adultery at this point in time. And if that is the case, it is no wonder that Paul honed in on these particular areas, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. 
We might, it might help you to think about righteousness as doing acts of good and righteous acts to people. Self-control as far as I, myself, I control myself. And then the judgment to come, how I'm accountable to God up in heaven. Three distinct areas there that Paul probably touches upon, and I'm probably sure, perhaps sure that he touched upon something that caused them to consider their situation. For Felix was terrified. This bothered him, didn't it? Verse 25, and he answered and said, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. If we, like Felix, are waiting for a convenient season, when does that convenient season ever come around? It's as if the truth is standing before your door and saying, listen to me, and we slowly shut the door and say, wait I, I, I do want to listen to you, but not today. The truth never comes at a convenient time, does it? Whether we consider when we were first converted or even today, the truth knocks on our door, and lest we say truth, it's not a convenient season. We'll never find that convenient season We'll never find the opportunity when it's everything is working out perfectly. Okay, now I will listen. Yes. Felix's uh, discomfort here um, can be explained, of course, by the kinds of things Paul was discussing. And so noticing that it was righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. In fact, these are the words that are in keeping with the message of the Holy Spirit. Back in John 16, verse 8, uh, Jesus is sending the Helper. And when He comes, He will convict the world. So the message <laughs> convicts the world. Felix is, uh, by him putting it off, it shows that this message had its effect. And so when He comes, this is still John 16, verse 8, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Essentially, these same things that Paul centers his message when he has that opportunity to speak to somebody about serious things and things that really matter. Um, it's the words of the Spirit, and it convicts. Um, one other comment, if you'll let me rewind oh, yes. for uh, just, just a little bit. It shouldn't surprise us at all, if we know the words of Jesus, um, to see what Paul has to say regarding uh, spiritual things uh, in, in a civil court setting. Um, because Jesus had given the promise and the help to his disciples that um, when he goes away, this would be um, in one place, Luke 21, um, verse 12, he tells his disciples that this is what they're going to face um, before certain things. They will lay their hands on you, they'll persecute you, they'll deliver you, uh, uh, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. So all of these things make you think of Paul uh, very plainly, especially in our study now. 
They're going to deliver you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Okay, so he, it's almost as though he's telling them to look for that opening and look for that. But even more than that, verse 14, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist. All of this. All of this we see in what Paul has done. They're delivering him up. They have no, nothing to stand on. Paul gently points that out. Um, and it, on, on every occasion where he has the opportunity to speak, it's a testimony about who he serves, about the resurrection that's promised, and it's turning the conversation toward things that are really important. Mm-hmm. So. I, I think we see that manifested here probably more than any other place where the Holy Spirit helps him. Uh, at, maybe Acts 21, where he's before the Jewish crowd, and here I find it to be apparent that it really looks like the Spirit was helping him say uh, what he did in those two particular occasions, it seems. Okay, uh, as we continue, verse 26, during this period of time here, Felix is convicted, not convicted enough to be converted. Uh, During this continued period of time, two years, he hoped that Paul, he communed with Paul often, it apparently seems, and he had hoped that Paul would uh, perhaps give him some money. He found out maybe that Paul is a conduit of money, to the church's uh, benevolence. Maybe he realizes that Paul is a good fundraiser. So Paul here, he uh, seems to try to bend his ear and say, hey, uh, maybe I'll get you out of jail if you, uh, you know, a little money under the table. No, that's not going to work with Paul, is it? Verse 27, when two years were fulfilled, Felix was succeeded by Portius, Festus, and desiring to gain favor with the Jews, Felix left Paul in bonds. Notice that though having been exposed to the gospel, he finds a way to suppress the gospel in his heart, and then he falls back under this covetous way. Felix was known by the historians as a very ruthless, very ruthless person, very ungodly person. As we see here, very selfish and greedy, covetous person. But he left Paul in bonds as it simply summarizes here to gain favor with the Jews. Everyone that comes to authority here wants to appease the Jews. They're such a riotous Unruly kind of people, let's keep those people at bay. And that seems to be the idea for Felix here. All right, let's uh, want to go into chapter 25 for, for just uh, the first 10 or 12 verses here. We've got a lot to cover next week. We covered 25 and 26. So in order to make up a little bit of time, let's go ahead and start in chapter 25. Two years go by. Festus takes the place of governor now in place of Felix. Festus there, remember as we go forward that Festus does not have so much knowledge concerning the way as Felix does. He doesn't have that exposure to these people as much. 
But he comes into the province, and I notice in verse 3 that it's just three days before he goes on to, uh, to Jerusalem. It didn't take him very long to get to Jerusalem. It seems that was a priority. It seems that being in Jerusalem and taking care of those unruly Jews is a priority. Historians here would tell us that the James, the brother of Jesus, was assassinated here, was killed not assassinated, but was killed here during this period of time. When you have a transition of power from Felix to Festus, perhaps it is that James was killed during that time. So they seek an opportunity here with a change in authority. Verse 2, the chief priests and principal men of the Jews that are in Jerusalem, they informed him against Paul. They besought him. And in verse 3 and 4 and 5, they say, why don't you have him come? We would like to uh, hear him Again, we would like to resurrect this uh, case at the Sanhedrin. But what is their thing that they're going to try to do on the way? When Paul comes, what do they want to do? Ambush him. The same plot that they did in the previous chapter, chapter 23. While he's coming, we're going to ambush him. Isn't it interesting, two years have gone by, and they're still working on that same plan. So let him come, let's accuse him here. Verse 6, chapter 25, verse 6, when he had tarried among them not more than eight days, eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, down in elevation. On the morrow he sat on the judgment seat and commanded Paul to be brought. Notice once again that this is not something that's a low priority by any means. This is a high priority case. This may be one of the top five things that Festus has on his to-do list. See about Paul. Brings him before the judgment seat. When he was come, verse 7, the Jews that had come down from Jerusalem stood round about him, bringing many accusations, many and grievous charges, which they could not prove. Again, it makes me think, well, perhaps they still can't find those witnesses. Verse 8, while Paul said in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned at all. Verse 8, notice that those three points that we highlighted a moment ago, he is still bringing those up by saying that neither against the law, the law of Moses, or the temple, or against Caesar have I done any wrong at all, or sinned at all. But Festus what is his, when, when left with the, what shall I do? In verse 9, Festus defaults to what action? Whatever will make who happy? Whatever makes the Jews happy. If this is what they want, that's what I revert back to. There's one big problem, and we've talked about this before. Paul is a what kind of citizen? He's a Roman citizen. You can't just do anything you want to with a Roman citizen. With a Roman citizen, you, he has more rights and more protections. So verse 10, Paul stood up and he said, I'm standing before Caesar's judgment. Well, let me go back to verse 9. Festus says, why don't you go to Jerusalem? Why don't you go and be heard by me in their hometown? How would you like that? Would that be okay, Paul? How does Paul react? No way. 
Paul knows he doesn't stand a chance there. So now he appeals to whom? He appeals to Caesar. This is his opportunity to proceed with the case. He sees that Festus is not so much like Felix. Festus doesn't have a knowledge of the way. Festus has already defaulted to the Jews. He would prefer me go back there. So Paul says, I'm going to proceed. I'm going to advance this case. I appeal to Caesar. I have done no wrong. I have done no wrong against the Jews, nor against their law, nor against Caesar. Verse 11, he includes that I've done nothing worthy of death. Find that interesting as well. He said, if I have done something worthy of death, then I uh, have what's coming to me. But if none of those things is true, verse 11, whereof they accuse me, no man can give me up. I appeal to Caesar. And then Fester, conferring with his counsel, said, okay, you appeal to Caesar. To Caesar, you must go. All right, any thoughts as we conclude that portion? We'll do chapter, the rest of chapter 25 and 26 next week. Thank you for your participation.